Okay, we have another episode with Probably Canceled Podcast. Can you, both of you, Becky and Bridget, please introduce yourselves? Yes, um, I'll introduce myself first. Yat Aish A. Becky Jones, Sasha Jenne, Totsoni Nishlin, Ashihan Bashishti, Madishkishi Dashite, Do Tabahan Dashnala, Agot Ego Adzan Nishlin. But right now I reside in or based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is occupied Tiwa territory. Uh, my name is Becky. I am born for big or I am big water, born for salt people. My paternal grandfather is Coyotes Pass and my paternal grandfather is Water's Edge. Um, I'm originally from Fort Defiance, Arizona, but right now I am living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I'm a co-host with Probably Cancelled Podcast with Bridget, Comrade Bridget. Um, I'm also a member with the Red Ant Collective, and we're a communist collective in the greater Southwest area. And I'm a Marxist proletariat feminist. And um, my day job is I'm a sex educator as well. So I do a lot of programming um, for young people, you know, trying to provide comprehensive and inclusive sex education, uh, specifically to Indigenous populations. So I'd like to go back home and provide sex education there and to the other uh, local indigenous communities um, around Albuquerque, New Mexico and the Four Corners area. Um, but thanks. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Bridget, would you like to introduce, introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Bridget O'Quillen. I'm a former survival sex worker. Uh, I'm also an educator like Becky. I work with the youth as well. I'm a communist and a sex trade abolitionist. And like Comrade Becky, I'm one of the hosts of the Probably Canceled podcast, which is a revolutionary feminist podcast dedicated to combating liberal feminism and uplifting the voices of proletarian women. So thank you so much for having me, Rick. I love your podcast as well. So I'm super happy to be here. Thank you. It's an honor you know, to have you here. Um, oh, today I want to talk about several topics but the first topic i want to talk about or ask you about is what is uh proletariat feminism or revolutionary feminism sure i can get into that it might be kind of a long answer because it's a it's an important subject and uh one that i think can be spoken about thoroughly i'll try not to be too long-winded uh but first i want to give like a background to the historic tendencies of feminism to kind of give a landscape of where revolutionary feminism would even fit in uh, to the different tendencies of feminism, because there's many different tendencies. I'm not even going to list all of them because there's too many to list. Um, but first, I want to talk about liberal feminism, which is the mainstream feminist ideology. Uh, it's what you're going to see in popular culture. It, like Think Hillary Clinton, AOC. Uh, this type of ideology uh, is really solidified itself since the creation of neoliberalism. Um, so for some, sometimes I like to call it neoliberal feminism because that's precisely what it actually is. So uh, liberal feminism forgoes the collectivism and collective liberation uh, ideas that were prevalent during the second wave of feminism. And instead, liberal feminism chooses to go the route of what's often called individual choice feminism. 
So it tends to separate the individual from the group and forces you to focus on your own liberation as an individual, right? So it is very neoliberal, but it's really the only version of feminism that most people are presented with today as like the only option of how to be a feminist. Um, it's very much the ideology of the times and it reflects the trends in capital under an increasingly individualistic society. So this is where we get the archetypes of like the girl boss uh, and the idea that anything could be feminist if a woman chooses to do it, which as Marxists and materialists we know is not actually true, right? So liberal feminism is also drenched by this point uh, in postmodernism and it on its own is incredibly anti-Marxist, but that's like a whole other subject. I could go, I could talk about that forever. Uh, so of course, much of the global South has not reached this peak of individualism. So uh, in most of the global South, second wave collectivist feminism or what most people call radical feminism is still very prevalent and widely utilized. Uh, the second wave feminists are widely overlooked today, but they truly laid the groundwork for diagnosing women's condition in the 20th century. Uh, so second wave feminism or radical feminism, like I mentioned before, is collectivist, meaning that no one is free until we are all free. It's also a materialist feminism that takes women's material conditions into account. And although it has some major disagreements with Marxism, uh, it, has, it is rooted in the Marxist tradition of materialism. So with all of that in mind, like that's pretty much the last hundred years or yeah, hundred years or so of, of feminist history in like a little capsule there. It's the best I can do in like a short time period. But uh, with all that in mind, revolutionary feminism combines the materialism of the second wave and then reunites it with a class analysis. So explaining women's condition as relating to economics and class society itself. So revolutionary feminism is the struggle for women's emancipation in all areas of life through the development of socialism, or I prefer to say communism, uh, and it recognizes the fact that women's emancipation cannot occur without the development of communism. And likewise, communism cannot occur without the struggle of women's emancipation, considering women make up over half of the world's population, right? Uh, so while previous incarnations of feminism have been considered bourgeois by communists, and that is totally historically true, Overall, revolutionary feminism or proletarian feminism unites proletarian women with our proletarian male comrades to fight together for the emancipation of the masses. Uh, and we cannot achieve our goals without the unity of this struggle. So we look to the theory and actions of many communist uh, and feminist theorists who have come before us who lay the groundwork for our freedom. So that includes people like Alexander Kollontai, Andrea Dworkin, who is not a communist, but did a lot of amazing theoretical work for 
uh, women's emancipation, the same for Catherine McKinnon, uh, Mao, Lenin, and Thomas Sankara, just to, to name a few. So I hope that uh, gives like a rough overview and, and Becky, you can add to that as well, whatever you'd like. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so revolutionary feminism, you know, also builds that solidarity relationship that proletariats have or should have in the context of like our material conditions. Um, there are similarities of indigenous women in greater North America and other indigenous territories around the world that deal with the same material conditions that's brought on by imperialism and colonialism. And so especially when it comes to the extraction industry, we see a lot of sacred indigenous territories that are being like desecrated for resources that are then imported to rich communities and nations. So proletariats and revolutionary feminists are always on the front lines and you know pretty much always will be. Um, resistance to extraction, settler colonialism and exploitation is what indigenous mothers, aunties and grandmothers have been doing since time immemorial. And although it may not be labeled as revolutionary or proletariat, we have our own language for what a strong leader looks like. And, you know, there I don't see much of a difference between indigenous feminism and being a Marxist feminist, because, you know, for the liberation of especially an emancipation of women, but also native women and women of color all across the globe. Um, we're fighting for like decolonization, we're fighting for indigenous sovereignty and the human rights of uh, indigenous families, women, children, everybody, basically. Thank you. That was really good. I, you know, I, was, <laughs> I think you guys covered, you guys covered my, uh, my sub questions, <laughs> like, you know, our reading uh, suggestions and uh, what is, you know, the difference between, or is, is there a difference between, you know, a, Marxist feminism and indigenous feminism. Um, so, you know, I, I you know, uh, so, you know, there's a topic that came up, I was last year that, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, heat on, on your uh, podcast. One of them was about sex work. And, um, you know, I think you did that, uh, Bridget, you did an episode with um, uh, Jennifer Marley and um, I forgot the other guest you had, uh, but, uh, you know, you talked about how sex work was exploitative and, you know, I listened to your podcast really good. I learned a lot, but can you talk about how sex work, if, you know, your views on sex work and, and why uh, you feel like you got this heat, obviously because, you know, people are liberals, but can you, yeah, can you talk about your experience? Yeah, uh, so I, I love Jen Marley. You might be thinking Jen Marley did a podcast with Red Nation podcast with Cara from Affirm. And then uh, Esperanza Fonseca and I did yeah. one with Left Radio. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yes. Yeah, that, that one, that was like oh, peak yeah. life moment for me. <laughs> but yeah, it got a lot of heat. People were, were really not uh, happy with our firm opposition of the sex trade as sex trade abolitionists, which is really interesting considering sex trade abolition has always been the communist line on the subject of sex exploitation, the commodification of, of sex and commodification of like human bodies or like the reification of, of intimacy in general. Uh, so considering it's something that Marxists have written about 
extensively throughout the past 180 years or so. Um, it was really sad to see such a strong visceral reaction uh, from the public when that Rev Left Radio episode dropped. And yeah, uh, so yeah, did you want us to talk about just like our, our views on the sex trade in general? Yeah, because, you know, uh, when that when that episode came out, it was people were saying you guys had like a carceral view. I'm not sure what that term means really, uh, or, or like, you know, like you, you were anti-sex work. Well, obviously, but yeah, like it was just, the, <laughs> I remember listening and I thought it was, it was a really good episode, uh, but and I agreed. I think, uh, yeah, just talk about your views and um, the critiques you got and maybe, you know, like, uh, and your your own views on these critiques. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, people throw around that term carceral feminism because they, I think it's a, a lot of really basic misunderstandings, first of all, you know, like if you haven't been presented with the communist theory of sex trade abolition, it's really easy to mistake these positions as being right-wing or conservative. Uh, if you're not applying like a proper Marxist analysis and economic analysis to this particular industry that is like probably the most violent industry that exists uh, or one of the most you could say um, but so I, the carceral feminist thing I think it's good to get out of the way that sex trade abolitionists at least the communist ones do not believe that anyone participating in the sex trade should be criminalized. Uh, generally, if you talk to a communist sex trade abolitionist, all of us will say that people in the sex trade should all be decriminalized. No one should ever be arrested. Um, but we do not hold that same line for exploiters like John's pimps and traffickers, which as a communist, it's like, you know, either you're on the side of the exploiters or the exploited, you have to choose one. You can't just like pick both somehow. It doesn't really work like that. Uh, but I wanna be really clear in saying that in critiquing the industry, we are in no way attacking individuals who participate within the trade, right? Like I personally am a former participant in the sex trade myself. I was pushed into it while trying to escape an abusive relationship and I was homeless and had like had no job in a city that I'd never been to before because I had to escape um, and found myself in that position. But I, I honestly have no shame surrounding my involvement in the past, nor would I ever shame anybody for being involved in the sex trade. But as Marxists, just like when we critique the oil industry or we critique Amazon, we do not attack the individual workers, right? We can critique the sex trade, but not critique the individuals who are utilizing the trade in order to survive under capitalism, which the vast majority of them are. Um, so I think that's important to get out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, Becky, do you have anything you wanna to add to that? Before we go on yeah kind of um i mean a lot of us who are speaking out against the trade the industry itself um i've i've i mean we've all lost friends <laughs> i have um 
And so it's been really tough because it's like holding that line has been extremely eye-opening for me and also making me a better Marxist, um, you know, in general. But it's also been hard to like, I don't know, try to make it, you know, accessible for people because we're all at different levels. So I try to make it, you know, as comprehensive as I can for people who don't, who aren't Marxists. But I've also gotten a lot of, um, not praise, but people saying like, thank you. This is how I've always felt. And I've done a lot of work um, with sex trafficking survivors, uh, working around like advocacy um, and policy work uh, for sex trafficking, especially within indigenous communities. And I can tell you that a lot of the older people that have been doing this for a long time, um, they already knew it. They already knew that there was a sex trade industry. Um, and, it, you know, before, well, before I started, before I became a Marxist, um, you know, I was like a hardcore liberal. Uh, a lot of us are. And so I was like, what are you doing? Why are you using the word prostitute? But now I'm just like, they were right. You know, the aunties were right. <laughs> and um, they're getting a lot of flack and pushback by a lot of uh, younger people. Um, and I'm feeling that now, now that I'm in my mid thirties, a lot of younger people are starting to call me a swerf. Um, they're saying I'm anti-indigenous and I'm like, how can you be anti-indigenous? Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot, um, to deal with. I mean, you know, I feel, I feel like I've been making a lot of connections and kinships with lots of people, especially internationally, but I'm also, um, losing a lot of people that I, I really did care about because they're also holding their stance as well. Yeah, for those that don't know, because I don't know what that term was a swerf, surf, that term. Swerf, S-W-E-R-F, which means sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist. It's like a slanderous <laughs> insult word people liberals like to use. Oh, like tanky. <laughs> Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like turf or tanky and yeah, red yeah, flash kind of those types of things. Yeah, I think you know when I, that episode came out and I was uh, looking at at the um, you know the stuff that was online about the episode, like that, especially the angry comments uh, or the reviews, whatever. Uh, there's two aspects that I saw that, that I, I can put them under. One, they didn't hear the episode at all. And they just generalized because somebody else said something. And two was they didn't have the, the understanding what Marxist theory is or how to see things through like an ana Marxist analysis, uh, you know, and I think that that's what's missing, you know, throughout, you know, the U.S. So when, when I was reading these comments, I get I get the same thing, too, when it comes to, you know, some episodes I have and, it, and it's just like it's frustrating because you, you want to like obviously you're doing this podcast your your podcast uh to teach people and so to help them understand but you know then the same time they don't, they don't understand it because they don't have the basic understandings of Marxism is it's frustrating so um yeah yeah I think it it really just is a testament to how liberalism has really pervaded the the western left and communist spaces as well which I would you would think would be better on this subject but it's the liberalism is just like completely pervasive and uh I I think another major 
misunderstanding is like the liberal rhetoric surrounding empowerment or what's empowering, right? Like to me, empowerment means moving towards women's emancipation as a collective. And I think a lot of liberals envision empowerment as meaning like being able to pay your rent that month or being able to like buy food that day or something like that, which to me, like it's it's these definitions that get changed uh, under liberalism that like I I think really work against us in the realms of feminism. Like if it were truly empowering work, we would see men and people of all class statuses entering the sex trade, but we don't see this at all. Like yeah, I think the pandemic also has really laid this all bare with the majority of people losing their jobs during the pandemic be, being women and primarily women of color. And then what, what else do we see? Like the explosion of OnlyFans and the ex explosion of prostitution because, you know, who has money during the pandemic? It's going to be like middle class, upper middle class or wealthy white men most of the time. Um, and then you have this like army of surplus labor of poor women working class women trying to barely survive and like I, I think the pandemic has been really really revealing for that hopefully if people didn't see the exploitative nature of the trade before they can see it a bit more now um but there's there's a lot of propaganda that we're all exposed to for many years of our lives like like becky and i were both victims to that propaganda, you know, um, and having a Marxist understanding of like uh, labor theory of value or like what even is emancipation or how prostitution even came to be under class society, right? Like knowing that it, things were not always like this and understanding the role that imperialism and colonialism play in the perpetuation of the trade. Um, it, being a communist can give you hope towards the future of knowing that it doesn't have to always be like this and that it wasn't always like this and it can be changed. And to me, that's like true empowerment is working towards the ending of the shit. Like, Anyway, I'll stop talking about that because I could go on and on and on about it. I agree. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to add anything before the next question or topic? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Bridget nailed it. So. <laughs> I also wanted to mention or give a little bit of rundown, like <laughs> an encapsulated version of a Marxist labor power theory. Uh, so basically to simplify it, workers do not sell their bodies, right? They sell their labor, labor power. And when there are no jobs left willing to buy labor power or a person is confined to a life of poverty, the next resort is to sell the body itself. And this also tends to fall upon women and particularly women of color, like I mentioned before. Uh, so selling the body as a commodity has become a booming industry and especially now that many across the globe are facing poverty during the pandemic, it's just like 
like I said, it's fucking, it's, it's really difficult for me to watch. And then also like the simultaneous, simultaneous normalization of that is um, concerning for like generations who are coming up under this type of culture. But I also wanted to talk about the communist position on the sex trade because this seems to be something that a lot of communists themselves are missing and it's like a heated debate within communist circles and within orgs themselves i personally don't know any communist orgs on the like well within the us at least that hold the true communist position on the sex trade which is abolition uh, but almost every great communist leader has been staunchly in opposition to the sex trade so that's including marx himself engels lenin alexander kollontai wrote about this at length mao thomas sankara wrote about it incredibly at length and even anarchists like earlier anarchists like emma goldman and lucy parsons wrote in opposition of prostitution so if anarchism is more your thing, I recommend going and looking at what Emma Goldman and Lucy have written about prostitution and the necessity of abolition. So they, they also saw it as an oppressive force based upon human exploitation, and, and they were correct about that. Um, they also understood that socialism means providing resources for all people and through socialism we can broadly eliminate the poverty and misogyny that perpetuates the global sex trade so sankara thomas sankara who was the president of burkina faso um, who is one of my personal heroes was extremely explicit in his writings and speeches that women's emancipation was dependent upon their freedom from sexual exploitation and that this feature of society represented the crux of women's subjugation because it truly does. Uh, so there are many, many quotes from him on the subject, but I just wanted to give one that I personally really love. And, and Thomas said, prostitution is nothing but the microcosm of a society where exploitation is a general rule. It is a symbol of the contempt men have for women. And yet this woman is none other than the painful figure of the mother, sister, or wife of other men, thus of every one of us. In the final analysis, it is the unconscious contempt we have for ourselves. There can only be prostitutes as long as there are pimps and those who seek prostitutes. So if you have any doubts about the communist position of sex trade abolition, I highly recommend you go and read uh, the work of Thomas Sankara and Alexandra Kollontai in particular, uh, because it, it was really transformative to me to know that all of my personal experiences, but also just like uh, outside of personal experiences, just general materialist analysis of the world around us, it's it was really validating validating to know that other people have considered this extensively and like written about it at length and spoken out against this. Um, and for me, it really helped reading other people to be able to talk about it on my own and like be open about my stances on this, because like Becky said, it can be really intimidating and there, there can be a lot of backlash and even like lose your, you can even lose your friends or your community. Um, but there is 
actually a whole world of people out there who know this to be true instinctually or just <laughs> through personal experience. Um, but we also have a formal Marxist theory behind the necessity of sex trade abolition. So yeah, thanks, thanks for holding on for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Bridget. So I kind of wanted to go into like missing and murdered indigenous women and like the history of the trade uh, within like the so-called United States. Um, so missing and murdered indigenous women, MMIW was a movement in response to when a native woman has gone missing or murdered. And this is obviously a global phenomenon. Um, this term, um, it can be used for the first contact of European settlers that invaded so-called America. Uh, one of our first relatives on record who was trafficked was Matoka, which people know as Pocahontas because of Disney. Um, and they used her story, exploited her story to make a false historic claim of white European people invading the Americas. Um, when in fact, she never did meet John Smith. Her village was pillaged for supplies uh, the the uh, settlers would put guns to the leader's heads, such as her dad, um, who was a leader of her community. Um, her husband, Kokoam, she actually married Kokoam, was murdered by the settlers. Um, she had a child with Kokoam, but she gave up her child uh, up to the village members to take care of because uh, she was cap she was held captive and she was raped. Um, John Rolfe, who was another settler, uh, eventually married her. He was a settler who wanted to form an alliance with her people so he could learn how to grow tobacco and sell it. Um, she was forced to convert to Christianity and was forced the Christian name Rebecca. She was taken to Europe to be shown off like an object and while traveling back, it's suspected she was murdered and had a form of an STI. Um, she was 21 when she died. So this form of intimidation and domination was not only reserved for the land, but also for the inhabitants and original caretakers of the land. Before the invasion of settlers, there were more than 10 million indigenous peoples in the Americas. And by 1890, the contact situation had wiped out about 75 to 90% of indigenous peoples due to disease and warfare. So basically, it, you know, it's genocide. Um, the resource that the settlers were fighting for was land and through warfare, they used intimidation and power of dominance, you know, tactics by using rape and sexual assault on women and children. Um, gay, trans and other gender variant relatives were murdered because they didn't fit the gender binary, um, which was due to Christianity. Uh, young children and women were the targets of rape, just like Pocahontas. There was hypersexualization on native bodies because we would wear clothing that fit with the seasons, uh, you know, breastfeeding without shame, um, which, you know, meant that there were exposed parts of our bodies, which was normal prior to colonization. And it's funny when we bring up the story of like sexual assault and rape on native women by white men, uh, white women will impose that it was native men who stole white women and raped them you know, which is good old American cowboy propaganda, if you've seen any Westerns. Um, but there are many oral accounts of Native men who did not harm settler women and children. Native men and other warriors knew that you don't harm women and children. And the settlers were actually the ones who were savages. So we're dealing with the extermination by the US government while they are expanding further and further to the West. And our relatives down South are dealing with Spanish settlers 
who are also using the same tactics. And again, up north, uh, we have our relatives who are dealing with the French settlers. Um, the US government knew we couldn't be exterminated, so forced assimilation came to be, which was the quote, kill the man, save the Indian. No, wait, yeah, wait, was that it? Kill the man, kill the Indian, save the man, <laughs> sorry. It should be the other way, just kidding. Uh, this form of violence on native bodies is still ongoing. Um, this colonial settler project is ongoing and it won't stop pretty much, I mean, until we're all dead, until our culture's dead, until everything's gone. And so how does the sex trade, you know, fit into all of this? Um, based off the article Garden of Truth by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition and Prostitution Research and Education, um, assault on women, especially children, was a capital offense. And within um, my nation, uh, Navajo Nation, with Diné oral history, the justice for the victim of rape or sexual assault was killing the perpetrator. So sexual assault and rape was something super, super taboo. You know, we didn't do it. If you did, basically you were killed. Um, so there was very low occurrence of sexual and domestic violence within indigenous communities. Um, fast forward to our current time, native peoples in the US have right now the highest rates of sexual and domestic violence. Uh, nationally, non-native men are the perpetrators. Um, but unfortunately, in New Mexico, our Native men are the majority of the perps. And so where does this violence come from, like especially sexual violence? We can look at boarding school and relocation era to point us to where sexual violence and prostitution came to be. Um, boarding schools stole Native children away from their families and communities. Um, you know, boarding schools stripped us of our language, our culture, and traditional knowledge and replaced it with physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And the Relocation Act, which happened in 1940 to the 70s, pushed by the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, encouraged Native people to leave. They're encouraged, I'm quoting encouraged, but basically made Native people leave their homes um, from the res to move to urban areas. And so being away from family, your language, your culture, this meant that Native people were vulnerable to the exploitation of being prostituted. Um, according to a study by Kuttner and Lurinks, they observed, um, quote, until World War II, the only readily available employment for Indians off reservations was prostitution for young women. So the high rates for sexual violence does not include the violence, prostitution, or sex trafficking um, as, a, as a form of sexual assault or sexual violence. So it probably means that the number of sexual violence that we have now is a lot more higher because we're not including people who are in the trade. And we see this trend all over the world, basically where there is a colonized country, um, the indigenous peoples um, make up a big chunk of that sex trade in their area. And it's used for tourism. Um, it's, it's basically used to boost up um, uh, the economy in those countries and it's enforced by a lot of imperialist countries. Um, so I'm gonna share some results from the Garden of Truth, uh, the prostitution and trafficking of native women in Minnesota. Um, I wanna add a content warning that this information is not easy to digest. So please take you know, care of yourself if you need to. Um, but basically in this um, research uh, project, they interviewed 105 Native women who were prostituting in Minneapolis, Duluth, Bemidji, um, all in Minnesota. The average age of women was 35. 
Um, they have been prostituting on average for about 14 years. And the average age that they started prostituting was 21. 39% had been using prostitution when they were minors. At the time of these interviews, more than a third, 37% of the women had been used by more than 500 men. 11% had been used by 500 to 900 men. And 16% of the women had been used in prostitution by 900 to 1,000 men. Um, sorry, it's just hard to like talk about this and read the information because it's just like, it's, it's tough. Um, so 57% of the 105 women had family members who are also in the trade, which included cousins, sisters, mothers, aunts, nieces, and daughters. Brothers and fathers were mentioned as being um, possibly the pimps, and this is all within Minnesota state lines. So that's just one state. And if, I mean, can you imagine what each state looks like if these are the numbers? So moving forward with the Urban Indian Health Institute report, their MMIW report, they selected 71 cities in the so-called US and found that 280 cases, 56% were murder cases and 98% of the cases, which is 19% had unknown statuses. The youngest victim that they found was a baby less than one years old. And the oldest victim was an elder who was 83. And by state, right now, New Mexico is number one with the highest cases, followed by Washington, then Arizona, Alaska, Montana, California, Nebraska, Minnesota, and Oklahoma. And as far as city goes, where I'm residing, Albuquerque ranked, ranked second of the highest cases with Seattle at number one. So both reports show that the only research and statistics we have is based off urban natives living in border towns, but we know you know, due to the material conditions of res life, that there are not a lot of job opportunities for tribal members. So a lot of our resources are extracted and outsourced to border towns, even our labor. This means a lot of tribal families and members are economically coerced to join the sex trade. And that falls onto women and unfortunately children. And according to the Minnesota report, there's a link of sexual abuse and incest being a precursor to women joining the trade. 79% um, of the women interviewed have been sexually uh, abused as children by an average of four perpetrators in their life. And I want to quote Andrea Dorkin uh, from Prostitute and Male Supremacy, quote, incest is boot camp. Incest is where you send the girl to learn how to do it. So you don't obviously have to send her anywhere. She's already there and she's got nowhere to go. She's trained. And the training is specific and it is important not to have any real boundaries to her own body, to know that she's valued only for sex, to learn about men, what the offender, the sex offender is teaching her, end quote. And, you know, so when we're talking about sexual violence and trying to find variables to said violence, we need to also look at the sex trade industry because that is a big gap that is deliberately being avoided when we have these conversations. And when we are hosting sex trafficking trainings and talking about missing and murdered relatives, we need to be including everyone involved in the sex trade and see it as a whole industry. Um, I think we need to be including everyone involved in the sex trade um, because we're doing a disservice to indigenous relatives who are being fed liberal American propaganda about the trade. Um, 
We're also doing a disservice to our Indigenous babies and our children by allowing the sexual messages and quote, empowering <laughs> messaging that surrounds the trade. Um, you know, land back and decolonization includes women's emancipation and the abolishment of the sex trade industry. So that's that's my little spiel about the, you know, MMIW kind of like I could go on and on and on. But um, yeah, it's it's tough doing this work. It's it's hard, um, you know, being a sex educator uh, out in the field and working with young people because uh, incest does run, you know, rampant within our communities, especially in rural areas on the reservations. Um, talking about sexual abuse, talking about rape, it's you know having to make a report uh, to the state or, you know, to tribal agencies to let them know that this is happening. And it's, 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 it takes a toll on you. Um, it, it's a lot, of, it's a lot of work. Thank you for that. I, yeah, I think one aspect too, when it comes to, um, you know, MMIW is that a lot of these tribes are hands are tied. They have no jurisdictions over, you know, non-native, um, you know, rapists or murderers that come to the community. And even that's a whole conversation. It's a lot of information you gave. I think, thank you for that information. Um, and, you know, the next topic, it, it goes with, you know, how people get bombarded with this type of, uh, this like capitalist culture, materialist culture, super sexual culture. Um, I listened to two of your episodes, the hookup culture episode and the Daddy Marks episode. And I noticed that many of the guests were introduced to toxic people or behavior, sexual behaviors, really early in their lives. And I do want to talk about this, you know, having uh, two daughters. Um, uh, you know, I want to give a story that, one, you know, one time I was, you know, one of my daughters is in middle school. And I was picking up my daughter from, well, you know, our daughter from uh, school with my spouse. And we were at a stop sign. You know, there's a bunch of kids leaving the school, and there were like teenage boys in the middle school, and they were groping these students. We can see in the distance that was happening. We were like, how do you know where do these kids, these boys get taught this behavior? You know, we had a conversation with our daughter, you know, that that, that type of behavior is unnecessary. Um, and it's it's why it's bad. And you know, and just so even the materialist uh, culture, you know, with my other kids that you know asking asking for like super expensive shoes like 400 shoes we're talking about this before the recording you know what one of my daughters uh asked me for like 400 pair 400 pair of shoes and i was like that's a, a little bit excessive you know and um i i you know it, it's hard you know as being a marxist uh and you know when I, when I was growing up, I was, you know, like, I was like anarchist, you know, Marxist growing up in high school. So like, you know, these things, material, materialist things didn't matter to me, but now having kids, I feel it's my responsibility to teach them how to analyze, you know, uh, society and, and, and their environment, their, their own environments through these theories. And I, one example is I had to, I had to buy, I felt like, you know, it was a good idea to, during a road trip with me and my daughter is, is, you know, we both, you know, read a Marxist book during the road trip. And I really do think um, that we have to, I, I felt like it was an obligation for me to teach my daughter this stuff, 
you know, Marxist theory, and you know, because she's getting bombarded with this like really overly capitalist culture, materialist culture in a very young age, you know. Uh, you, guys have, you guys have any thoughts on that or your analysis on that? We have so many thoughts on that. <laughs> it's, it's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast. Um, like, yeah, it, there's so many different directions we could go with this. But first of all, I so wish I had a Marxist parent or Marxist parents growing up because, I mean, what what percentage of us do have that? I think very few um here in the united states and like we were talking about this before we started recording but uh, what your daughter is being bombarded with like i i i think we can all personally relate to that um i grew up in the 90s and the 2000s and already at that point the messaging was fucking horrible like bombarded with sexualized images of women and images of men sexualizing women. And I don't know, like when I was, I, I remember being eight years old and already hating my body, um, being eight years old and already like sexualizing myself because these were the messages I was being given was that if I wanted to be desired or be accepted, by the people around me, like my peers or by society, I had to be sexual. I had to be sexualized and I had to be beautiful and like to capitalist standards, which like <laughs> I did not fit in whatsoever as an eight-year-old little girl. <laughs> like, uh, but I desperately wanted to fit within that. And this conversation definitely needs to be had and it's really rough because if you criticize porn which i'm a big fan of doing or if you criticize like you know the, even the culture of like victoria's secret fashion shows or something as mild as that if you critique that you will be called a prude and this and that and it, it's just become so normalized <laughs> like sexual violence has become incredibly normalized through pornography and like I, I i can only imagine what it's like to live as a adolescent or a kid today with just how advanced the pornification of society has become and like it honestly horrifies me i don't have i don't have kids of my own yet but like I think about when I, I will, if I'm lucky enough to be able to have kids, like how am I going to be able to talk them through this? Because <laughs> I didn't have anybody to talk me through any of this stuff. Like I didn't even get a sex talk when I was a kid. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this subject. But what about you, Becky? Yeah, it's definitely I mean, I feel like. Like it wasn't too bad when I was growing up in the nineties, like kind of early nineties, mid nineties, um, to early two thousands. But now that, you know, there's technology, lots of people, lots of parents are buying their kids phones, um, tablets, my little nieces who are like three, four, two years old, they all got new tablets for Christmas. And I'm like, what the heck? Um, 
but you know, kids are so good with technology and how to navigate, like getting on Facebook, um, <laughs> using Instagram. It's kind of, it's kind of scary. So if they're, if they're that smart and like, you know, media literate, they're more than capable of accessing pornography online. And then also pornography is on Instagram. You know, we, um, as a sex educator, when I talk to parents, I, I tell them, you know, it's easy for them to access it because if you do a hashtag porn, hashtag boobs or anything like that um, into the search bar for Instagram, those images or videos will pop up. Um, although they're trying to shut it down, sometimes they're up on it for like maybe an hour, a couple minutes. And so it's, it's accessible even through regular social media apps, uh, which is pretty scary. And along with Bridget, I wanna be a mom too. I'm terrified. <laughs> It's, it's scary, but you know, hopefully Bridget and I can be like the cool Marxist proletariat mothers um, that we want to be. But right now I'm the hardcore Marxist proletariat auntie. So <laughs> I'm like letting people know what's up. Yeah, it is scary, you know, um, having my, you know, my kids go through this and watching them. And I, I feel like um, I, I try to talk to them um, about, you know, these issues and be like, hey, you got to read, you know, um, you got to read, you know, I, you know, but, but my oldest is like in his 20s. And one day, you know, he was in high school when he was living with me. And I saw he had like a Jordan Peterson book. And I was like, get, get the shit out of here. <laughs> What's this like? How the hell did you get this book? In, his, in my house and he was like uh uh oh one of his classmates gave him that in high school to read and I was like that is straight trash Nazi trash you know and I, yeah. and I was like time for you me and you to have a talk and intervention such, time yeah I was like this is it scared the shit out of me man and you know and uh with my other kids you know uh it's they're not, you know, as old, but I, I was, you know, I, I'm seeing them, you know, grow, they ask me for things. And, you know, I do want to provide them with a life that they're, they're comfortable, comfortable life, but not to the point where I'm, I'm spending things, you know, for like $400 shoes, even to me, $100 shoes is too much. Right. I mean, yeah. growing up, I was like 10 bucks for shoes. Now I'm like, yeah. I'm like 60, <laughs> 60 bucks, like, you know, and it's, we went to like those those off-brand bootleg shoes uh, stores where it kind of looks like Converse, but it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, you know, the Converse are like eighty dollars these days. What the nuts. fuck? But the thing is, yeah, <laughs> it's um, you know, and then and then just like uh, Becky said <clears throat> with the cell phone, um, I had to you know we we, we my spouse totally gave our daughter a cell phone you know to communicate with us and you know to make sure she's safe. But then, you know, there's there's other kids, you know, in, in her school were sending her inappropriate stuff. We had to report it, you know, to the school. Oh and we're, we're yeah, like, that's that's a common theme with a lot of teenagers, um, especially with the younger they are, are more susceptible to grooming by strangers online. And then obviously we think of catfishing. We think of, you know, two adults, you know, maybe one person saying that they're this handsome guy. But actually, you know, a lot of the, the older men are um, preying upon younger girls in middle school and high school. Oh and then God. their picture will look like, you know, a, a cute high schooler or something. 
And um, there was actually a story about uh, someone, so a young Navajo girl who was trafficked out of Gallup, New Mexico. And her grandmother got her a cell phone because her stepfather was sexually abusing and physically abusing her and her sister. So she asked for a phone from her grandma and her grandma was like, yeah, you know, use this phone so you can stay in contact with me or if you need any help. And then her grandma was quoted like that was the worst thing I ever did because once she got that phone, she had access to a lot of um, uh, scary things online, porn, and then also being, um, she was she was groomed to be trafficked and she met her trafficker um, through her iPhone mm-hmm. and she wouldn't give it up. She was like, oh, I need my phone. And she ran away so she could keep her phone. Um, so it's it's pretty scary how people are connected with their their devices, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even Grindr, that app, uh, Grindr, I don't think there's even an age verification on there. So you have all these stories of young boys who get on that app and then are being exploited by grown men. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't even know how I would deal with that. Having a kid, like, because <laughs> I want to be authoritarian and just be like no phone or you have this like flip phone, you know, um, but then the also, firefly, the like yeah, phone exactly. with like four buttons. <laughs> the, yeah. The jitterbug or whatever they call yeah, the it <laughs> yeah, I, for like elderly people. <laughs> yeah. I had to take the phone away. Cause it was like, uh, you know, classmates were sending her inappropriate stuff. And I, I went to school. I was like, Hey man, you, you need to tell me what your actions going to be to this because this is inappropriate and they were like you know you can talk to the other parent only if they want to i was like that's bullshit to me my point of wow. view you know like you can't have those students send my daughter stuff and then you know me having my hand tied you know and i just had to take the whole phone away like you know it, it's you know it's rough because you know like i said growing up with, I didn't have Marxist parents, and I wish I did. Listening to those, to the um, those two episodes, that the one with um, um, the, the the everybody experiencing that is like they had you know I had a bad experience too. You know I feel like uh, you know there were people that in my life that you know pushed me or led me on grooming grooming that way to be you know to be in capitalist society. But you know I luckily I stick to my. <laughs> me trying to be cool and a Marxist when I was young, you know what I'm saying, and I didn't too much get into that. But now as an adult, it's it's scary, scary as hell, you know. And uh, I don't know. I can rant about this all day long too. But I I just feel like you know if you're like if you're first off, you're listening to this podcast or you're listening to uh, the property canceled and, and you are a parent. Like I think it's our obligations as parents to teach our kids, you know. Uh, how to uh, analyze, uh, you know, their, their their surroundings, you know, in a materialist way, class analysis, you know, and uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, I I don't want to like like shove my ideologies down my my kids' throat, but this is like so they don't get exploited. Like I don't want my kids right. to get exploited, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my thoughts on that. I think that's yeah. a good point. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Becky. I was just going to say, I think that's a good point of um, helping your children learn how to be uh, critical when it comes to what's being shoved down our throats on a daily basis, Uh, whether it's porn, whether it's sexual images or anything like that, Um, body images, like how we're supposed to look. 
you know, according to like Eurocentric body standards. Um, but, you know, again, thinking about people who aren't Marxists and thinking about other like proletariats or working class people or even native communities, we need to think about also children who are dealing with um, domestic violence or any kind of abuse at home, um, because that's what kind of makes it um, easier for people to prey upon them uh, because, you know, they're already like, you know, they probably have a low self-confidence. They don't have anybody to talk to. And so a lot of the times when children are searching for images or anybody to talk to, they're, they're craving, they're basically looking for something that they're not receiving at home, which is safety, which is love, which is care. And so I think parents who are, you know, not abusive at home and love their children, um, as long as you're having those conversations, your children will come to you um, with trust, uh, with any kind of question they might have. And I think as parents too, we should be open to those, those um, questions and not shut down or be judgmental too quick. You know, I think those critical conversations are very important and help um, like build and make way for our young people to have healthy relationships with other people. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty scary out there. Um, yeah, Bridget. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely, Becky. I think that was really important to know all of that and kind of piggybacking off of what you just said. Um, something that I'm sure I will struggle with if I ever am lucky enough to have kids of my own is really internalizing as a parent that I can only have so much influence over my children. Um you know, as, as humanly possible, but then society itself is going to be probably more powerful in shaping, uh, you know, my child's uh, ideas of the world even, or, you know, what they're exposed to, the information that they're being exposed to, like, will only be under my control to a certain extent and being aware, uh, like we talked about just a bit ago, like being aware of present day landscapes of the digital world and like being involved in your kid's life and knowing who their friends are, knowing who their teachers are um, is really important. And just like keeping an eye on them, you know, because, you know, you don't have to be too overbearing, but just keeping an eye on them um, because I was a preschool teacher for many years and there would be dads of my students who wouldn't even know my name, you know? And to me, that's like, you know, I've teach our kids for a few years and they still, the dads still don't know their teachers, their kids' teacher's name is <laughs> like a security <laughs> issue, you know, and that it wouldn't happen that infrequently uh, where, you know, fathers in particular would be detached from their child's environment and um so also just in general really calling upon men and calling upon men and uncles brothers <laughs> to be involved uh with the youth and be a good influence upon them because one of the things that we talk about on the podcast a lot is the subject of pornography and what a powerful force 
pornography can be and you know as marxists it's really important for us to analyze our own relationship with pornography because a lot of us have been inundated with this stuff since we were like eight to 12 years old is when a lot of people started watching porn if you're an adult like it's highly likely that you're probably addicted to porn you know at this stage of your life and we need to have a marxist analysis of pornography uh we need to see the inherent classism sexism racism ableism homophobia like you know anything bad that you can think of that you're principally against as a marxist pornography will encapsulate that and combine it all to be like the most in-your-face hellish hellish caricaturization of everything marxists say that they stand against um including things like human trafficking sex trafficking um and pretty much any exploitation you can think of porn will glorify and glamorize that and convince you and like you know condition you to tie your own pleasure to that exploitation uh, like you know the orgasm is probably one of the most powerful neurological responses you could have during your life and um i think a lot of us find ourselves having our sexualities tied to a capitalist market because pornography is mainstream media and it is heavily tied to capital and i think a lot of us end up with like our own sexualities and views of women and views of the world um being manipulated by these forces without even having been aware of it you know most of the time it happens to us in childhood so with all that being said i i really encourage everyone to analyze your relationship with things like pornography um or even like you know what accounts you follow on instagram for example um but also be aware of the kids in your life and how they may be impacted by that uh and how it will impact their relationships with not only their friends at school uh, but also their eventual romantic relationships because they're going to grow up to have you know love interests to be interested in sex and you know when pornography is your main method of sex education that's not good <laughs> like that that is not good at all so um as marxists i think that's one of the most important things we can do uh because it it is such a powerful force on our culture and on our society and upon like the impressionable minds of children and you know it's one of those things that it could be really uncomfortable to analyze but it absolutely needs to be done because even if you think you are personally above that kind of influence um i don't think that's true for any of us i don't think any of us are above uh that kind of like psychological neurological and sexual manipulation and uh you know we got to be aware of what we're teaching the younger generations and like what they're leaving to them because right now it is not good and it's not looking good so yeah i guess just 
take care take care of yourselves and take care of the kids too because like fuck this shit's dark it is it's super scary and uh it's i i like i said it's, it feels like it's my duty not just as a parent but as a marxist to help you know my child's uh, understand their own environment, you know, and so I don't have to continue to explain, um, you know, it's, it's also like colonization as well, you know, like I had a teacher, for example, real quick, uh, she gave my, my one of my daughters, uh, one of her teachers gave them uh, assignments of how it was like some weird, some weird shit, like how could have, the, how could the pilgrims colonize America's without genocide i was like that's impossible right and i have to write at the right oh my god yeah i made a rant on facebook and i i wrote the picture was like there's no such thing as justifiable colonization right mm -hmm. I was like, my daughter's not doing this assignment so you know just like the, even that you, having to analyze you know uh you know being an indigenous person <laughs> you know and colonization it's just wild but yeah thank you yeah you're involved that's yeah it's great like i'm i'm glad that you're involved in your kid's life because not everybody is yeah definitely um i think bridget brought up a good point about like men needing to um kind of really practice not watching porn um or participating in like porn or like the sex trade in general because it just kind of perpetuates that cycle of violence because the majority of perpetrators are men. And so it's it's definitely nice to see dads and uncles who are actively, um, you know, intervening or participating with their children and being involved in their children's lives on all levels, uh, which you really don't see. You really don't see. And like, I teach middle school. So like sixth grade and up, sometimes fifth graders, but, um, I did in-person after two years of doing virtual teaching, a lot of sixth graders were talking very raunchy to me, not like, not to me, but like talking about like sexual acts, which I'm glad they felt comfortable enough to talk to me about. Um, but, you know, obviously they're learning this language, um, these slang terms when it comes to different sexual acts. Uh, one, one youth, uh, one young boy was like, um, saying like a, his pull-out game. No, their friend's pull-out game was weak. And I'm just like, what? Um, oh my God. <laughs> it's so like, it, uh, it's a lot. And then teachers are coming to us and saying, yeah, this um, young sixth grader girl was performing oral on another sixth grader boy um, outside by the, uh, not the cubicles, but by the, um, I don't know, by some building, like just outside. They're... <laughs> It's happening. Sixth grade. That's Sixth so grade. That's insane. Oral sex. Yeah. And um, so they're like, we need you to come in. So, you know, everybody's panicking. Um, but it's it's definitely scary. And this is why we need to abolish the industry because it is getting, I don't know if it's always been this out of control, but now that I'm doing this work and I'm, you know, in the schools and hearing what people have to say, it feels it feels like a lot. It's definitely a lot to handle. Um, and so it's, you know, I think when we talk about consent too, that's something that gets, um, you know, it's obviously messed up if you're getting your lessons about consent through porn, because 
there is no consent usually it's very violent and it's usually violent towards women um, and it creates that aggressive behavior towards women at a very young age because kids imitate what they see, right? They, their young brains are learning, they're adapting. And so once they start watching pornography starting at a young age, that's just going to shape their minds. And then they're probably, you know, there's a chance of them being horrible men when they grow up. Um, and that's, that's super scary. Yeah, I, I agree that it's just like the, the, the surroundings and what they learn. I think, Bridget, you even brought up a, a critique about like that show Euphoria, you know, how, yeah. how stupid, stupid it is. And it's, it, you know, when you made that post, I felt that because when that show first came out, my daughter asked uh, my, my spouse to, to watch that. And I was like, what? I was like, I need to see what this show's about before. Because I don't, you know, I, I like to make sure my kids are, you know, what they're watching is appropriate. And then for the first 10 minutes, I was like, she cannot watch this. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is going to teach her garbage. You know, it was just like, uh, you know, and and, uh, and I was like, how did you, how, I was, you know, asking my daughter, how the, how the hell did your classmates watch this? Well, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I had to explain to, to my daughter, like, you know, some people don't have parents to tell them what's appropriate and what's not, you know. And I, I think at a point I had I had that issue with my, you know, well, my mom wasn't there for me to tell me these things. And I told her, I was like, I wish I had my parents, both my parents telling me what's appropriate and what's not and how to see these things. I was like, you should be grateful you, you have, you know, both parents telling you these things. I was just like, it's because they, some kids don't have that. They don't have a, a good uh, adult role model to to um, to teach them or even guide them which what's appropriate and what's not. Right. You know? Yeah, I don't think. Well, when I was young, when I was a kid growing up, my parents were pretty strict of what I could and couldn't participate in or watch. Like we didn't have cable growing up, which at the time I hated that. Um, because obviously my peers are talking about things, talking about TV shows, and I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but we just didn't have cable because like we couldn't afford it. And I really resented that. I resented my parents at the time because I felt like an outcast because I was. Uh, but I also wasn't allowed to watch most movies, especially if it was like PG-13 or like sexual in nature. And so again, like I didn't know how to participate in popular culture with my peers growing up. And it made me like so awkward and fucking like, you know, a total outcast child um, in comparison to everybody in my class. And that was rough. Like it was rough growing up and confusing because people were talking about like raunchy things and I had no concept of what the hell they were talking about. And that made me uncomfortable because I felt like a loser. Um, But now as an adult, I am so thankful to my parents for like kind of protecting me from from that level of influence. And that was like, you know, that was like the year 2000. I can only imagine. Oh, my uh, God. Being a young kid today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jerry Springer. Jerry's yeah, 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 yeah. But euphoria—that's like next level propaganda. And 
I I am so glad I'm not growing up right now. And like I think yeah. Think also, we should be giving young people the benefit of the doubt. I feel like with the young people now, like the Gen Zers, they're pretty critical about a lot of things and speaking up because they I are. never yeah, it's like I've never had anybody talk about the sex trade, but Bridget and I did a podcast with what were they called again, Bridget? The youth world without exploitation youth world. coalition. Yes. They were awesome. Um, and they were very critical of like, you know, that American sexual propaganda kind of stuff. And, you know, I watched Euphoria. I try to stay on top of like what young people are watching. So whether it's stuff on TikTok, different trends um, and Euphoria too, because it does pop up in classes. Um, but you can use it as a teachable moment of like, okay, so like what was messed up? You know, what were the red flags or how was like, uh, one of the characters, Nate Jacobs, he's horrible, horrible, horrible person, but like, you know, what makes his abusive or his uh, behaviors abusive? Um, would you want to have a partner like that? And then also one of the main characters, Cassie has very, very low self-esteem. And then, so kind of breaking that down and, you know, kind of leading people into like, you know, where does that come from? How is, you know, how is the beauty industry like treating women and like, you know, do people feel like this? Um, mm -hmm. which I think can be good conversation for young people, because regardless, if we say you can't watch it or you can't watch it, I was a kid that was snuck around and, you know, saw things I wasn't supposed to. I yeah. watched the shows that I wanted to because my friends, I could go to their house and, you know, I had access to it. So as much as we want to try to shield our, our, our young people, um, I mean, we should, we should try. But if they do get their hands on it, we want to make sure that that we're their trusted adult that they can come to and ask these questions and we can like right. break it down together. Yeah, they can have some real explanations because like, yeah, I didn't I didn't know what anything was like, you know, I started having sex because I didn't want to be like in the dark about that stuff. I was not ready to have sex. You know, I was definitely peer pressured into it. And like, I didn't know what anything was and that's just unsafe and i hope that i can be a parent who will be able to like give thorough explanations to my kids yeah. and like, like you said talk them through this really confusing stuff yeah, uh, i have a question for becky um do you want to talk about your work in sex education what do you do and organizations you work with or no, not really. <laughs> well, I'm a sex educator, but I don't want to name my organization um, just because I, I have to get clearance. Oh, okay. And, That's okay. Yeah. But it's a pretty big organization. Um, I do run a, um, or I'm the program manager for a native uh, kind of like community health worker program within this big organization. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my personal Instagram. Uh, should I put it out? You think that's okay? <laughs> Maybe <cute>. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can follow my jewelry <laughs> Instagram, which is Moon Girl. It's it's um it's actually not it's open. It's not private. So it's at Moon Girl M O O N G R R L six six six. Uh, but I do sex education lessons, and if you are someone who is interested in receiving lessons for young people, uh, for people with disabilities, for our parenting classes too, um, 
you know, we have these conversations. We also do train the trainer as well. So if you're an organization who wants to be more comfortable with talking about sex education, uh, we do trainings for that too. Um, but yeah, I do love being a sex educator. I, like Bridget, never received sex education when I was in middle school or high school or ever because uh, my family's Catholic. Um, but I'm very lucky that I had a really great partner who used condoms every time. So, you know, he had sex education. I didn't have sex education. So I was very lost. Um, but I also grew up in an abusive home too. So I feel like, um, you know, those codependency relationships was something that I kind of had to unlearn and kind of recognize for myself. Um, but it's hard. It's hard navigating being sexual, but it's also hard navigating how to be in a healthy relationship, which is something that we don't always talk about, especially when you grow up in homes where, you know, maybe your parents or your caretakers are not in a healthy relationship themselves. Again, we mirror and you know, imitate what we see. So if you're in an abusive home, you know, your chances of being, or like you're in a high risk category of possibly joining another relationship just like that. And so I think, you know, sex education is definitely important because, you know, it's really, it's really amazing to see kids have that aha moment of like, oh, that's what is abusive. I didn't know that's emotional abuse. Um, I didn't know that, you know, it was not okay to ask my partner for all their passwords for their social media. I, you know, like having those conversations are really fun. And I think those are important conversations that we should be having with young people because obviously those, you, we're not seeing that in TV shows or anything. Yeah, definitely. Everyone should uh, get comrade Becky for their sex ed. Cause I've seen her, um, uh, what would you call it a lecture <laughs> what do you call that <laughs> I think it was like a like it was it was a safer sex kind of demonstration or lecture demonstration yeah. yeah and it and it's like solid it's very good she's very good oh thank you yes um I think I think we are coming to an end and if anybody has anything to add um please <laughs> please uh, feel free to if not we can and this soon. Are you good? Thank you for having us. Um, I appreciate uh, every all the questions that you've asked us, Rick. Um, I hope people uh, can have these conversations with their friends, their family, their community members, um, and especially our young people. Uh, we, you know, they're at risk right now, and. Yeah we need to really stand up for them. Um, so whether you have kids or you don't have kids, you know, we got to fight for them, especially our indigenous babies. Cause yeah. they're, they're, they're a future. And um, yeah, just want to say a hat. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Yeah. And also we tried to cover a lot in this episode. Um, and if you want to hear more, conversations on topics like these are podcasts called probably canceled podcast you can listen to it on apple Podcasts, spotify Libsyn, pretty much anywhere anywhere that podcasts are uploaded to um and we have specific episodes dedicated to specific topics like pinpointing zeroing in on topics and then flushing them out 
Um, so like Rick mentioned before, we have one, for example, on hookup culture in the 21st century. And we also have one uh, called Sluts Dominate Daddy Marks. Uh, <laughs> and that one is about pornography and it's an interview with three Marxist men talking to them about their experiences being shaped, uh, you know, and, and brought up within pornified culture and how it shapes their relationship with uh, women and girls. So that's just a couple examples. Um, but we also, you know, it's heavy on the Marxism and we also cover other topics, but um, sex and relationships and the commodification of our lives and our bodies is like definitely a focal point of interest. Um, so if you want to hear more on that, please go check out our podcast. And yeah, thanks so much, Rick, for having us. I really, really appreciate it. And this has been a really fun conversation too. Thank you. Yeah, I think that the, the important aspect, well, that was one of many in that uh, Daddy Marks episode was how um, you know, these, these Marxist men were saying, hey, you know, if you're Marxist and if you need help with something, don't be afraid to ask. And I think that's, you know, and this, this is a whole down to conversation, but, you know, we shouldn't be mm -hmm. asking our comrades to help with our addictions, with our anything in life. You know, we shouldn't feel shame to admit we have these things, you know, that we have problems with. You know, so I thank you both. Please don't leave the Zoom. I'm gonna, you know, talk to you about the the name of the title of the episode. Thank you for everything. Great, thank you. <laughs>